Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. This is your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Thanks again to all of you, our listeners, for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep bringing you amazing guests like the one we have today, ad-free. <laughs> in, a, in a bizarre sort of twist, uh, the future of work is really competing with what I'll call the past of work. We're in the middle of what the Texas A&M psychologist Anthony Klotz calls the great resignation. There are record numbers of employees leaving their jobs in search of more fulfilling careers. As a species, when we're confronted with existential threats, like say, oh, a pandemic, we reconsider what matters and how we want to spend our time. That's fueling interest in everything from travel to new hobbies to, of course, reskilling and upskilling. On this podcast, we've heard recently from some amazing experts like Panos Yozos, the CEO of Learn Worlds, Gary Bowles, who just published The Next Rules of Work, and Brian Tolleby, the CEO of Ahura AI, about how online learning and really new definitions of work are reshaping the traditional conversation about what it means to be employed. Well, today we get to learn what is arguably the hottest sector of the new employment landscape, data science and analytics, and what's driving all the demand for these new kinds of careers. Just imagine, a better way to train, recruit, and retain key hires for these in-demand data-driven roles. Well, Matt Cowell, today's guest, started QuantHub to turn that vision into a successful company. Matt launched QuantHub in April of 2018, which was quite prescient, given that the <laughs> pandemic was still two years away. And prior to that, he was an engineering leader at places like Daxco and Ministry Brands. Matt hails from the great state of Alabama, making him our first guest from the heart of Dixie. So uh, buckle up. This one's going to be fun. Let's, uh, let's learn what's on the bleeding edge of uh, ways to develop data-fluent teams. Without further ado, Matt, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Uh, let's get started by having you share a little bit more about your background and uh, how you got into this space. Yeah, yeah. With well, first, uh, Dan, thanks for having me. And you know, this is a, certainly a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So, um, so I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Um, yeah, you you kind of talked about my background a little bit. I originally, actually, from the Midwest, uh, Midwestern part of the U.S., but I love the love the warmth. Um, maybe not the humidity as much. So, made my way to um, to Alabama. And QuantHub is I'm CEO of QuantHub, and we really exist. We're a data skill platform, so we exist. Um, to um, really improve the overall data fluency of individuals and organizations all over the globe, and uh, and so that's that's our mission. And um, you know we're early stage, um, just about three and a half years in, but um, you know we're well on our way. So Matt, you're a you're a chemist by training, and uh, <laughs> and and have spent yeah. time in the trenches as an engineering leader. What has surprised you most about your entrepreneurial journey so far? 
Yeah, what's been interesting, I, I've worked for larger companies actually as a chemist. I was a chemist at Procter & Gamble um, out of school and, and then um, decided that that really wasn't for me. And so went back to school and ended up going um, into IT um, with uh, Accenture, Anderson Consulting at the time. And so I think what I've seen um, and now really getting into the very early stage company, of course, is that it is quite a roller coaster. Um, and so everything just matters more is, is frankly the, um, is the truth of it. And so what ends up happening is at companies a little bit later stage than a startup, you, you're on a roller coaster too, but it might be weekly. And then what's really surprised me about um, being something that is a true, being in a true startup is, is the roller coaster can be hourly. And, um, and it's, it's just that way yesterday, started out the the day with a 80k ARR deal, <laughs> and that was at 8 a.m. And then you know at 10 a.m. had a customer call that was like so-so. <laughs> so it's just uh, it's just kind of the nature of it. There are highs and there are lows, and uh, you got to have an iron stomach. So that's congrats right. Congrats yeah. on the 80k ARR deal. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks. It was a good 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 start to the day for sure. You bet. You got to savor those ones, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we get so comfortable throwing around these awful cliches about the data economy and data being the new oil. And, you know, we're almost desensitized to that kind of stuff. Um, And yet, you know, there is an increasing, you know, really an insatiable demand for kind of data fluent team members. Um, Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on what's driving that demand? Well, I think, I mean, it's started by, there's just an unbelievable proliferation of data. And so you you can't get away from it, and and so that's really how it um, how this all started. And it's in it's in every aspect of of certainly of our professional lives, but even our personal lives. Um, if I were to say something about um, Siri right now, or, or I'll say Alexa quietly so she doesn't chime in, but you know it's just all around us, and 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 so that's part of it. You you know as a as a society and as a species. You, you earlier we were talking about us as a species. You know, we 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 start seeing those types of trends, and then we start taking advantage of that. And and so, with that data being all around us, now we're starting to use it much much more in at work. And so, as a result, it's it it's around every single one of us, and we all um, interact with data. Um, we all actually typically create data, which is not something that people think about. Um, and I mean, like frontline people, people in customer support they're entering tickets into CRM systems. So they're actually creating data. And so, you know, that's, you, we need better skills, frankly. Um, there's a massive skill shortage and um, from a data perspective um, globally. And so with it being all around us and it being much more a part of work now, you know, naturally we need the skills to do that effectively. In the popular press, we hear all the time about job elimination due to automation, we don't hear mm-hmm. much about all the new types of careers and roles that are being created by AI and data and automation. Maybe what, what's your perspective on some of the new opportunities that are be, being created? Well, I think you hear of people being knowledge workers, right? <laughs> and so going from maybe manufacturing or repetitive processes, that's obviously what's going to be automated. And you sort of start moving up that that hierarchy to being more of a knowledge worker. And, and so I do, I think rather than specific positions, I actually think that's just a trend that will continue where each and every one of us is becoming more of a knowledge worker. So we may not actually be doing the... Um, 
the repetitive tasks as much, but then we're going to be spending time analyzing the outputs of those tasks and, and things that uniquely as human beings, we have a skill set um, that is hard to reproduce. And that's the analysis side of it to a degree. And so that's sort of the macro trend, you know, and there will be, um, you know, there, there are plenty of resources out there in terms of the jobs that are being created. But uh, to me, they all kind of fit in that category of what we as human beings are very good at doing and, uh, and what computers are good at doing. So in the past few years, we've seen this proliferation of degrees in data science, never existed mm-hmm. before. Right. But many would say a four-year degree in data science isn't required to have, you know, a respectable job in a, you know, as a knowledge worker where your job inherently involves data manipulation, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'd be a data scientist. What are, oh, what are your thoughts yeah. on the, the core skills required to participate in this knowledge economy? Yeah, actually, I, I I couldn't agree more. This is not, I think that's part of the problem, quite honestly, is there's a lot of intimidation um, around data and people are afraid of data and they're, and they're afraid of it because so often we talk about it as if you have to be a data scientist to be able to do anything with data, which is, I mean, is ridiculous. Um, it, you know, being able to use data is just simply, I, I like to really distill it down and say, ask more questions about why things are happening and then try to find data to answer those questions. And if you just, that's just a super simple thing that any any person can do. And so you start looking for data, like uh, examples are in, in HR and hiring, or maybe in, maybe you're a sales, sales team member and you're trying to um, you're trying to figure out where the best best leads are coming from and why. So ask a couple questions and then start looking at that data you're already becoming more data-driven. And so in terms of the skills that are required to do that, um, you know, these are low-level skills. These aren't data science skills. I mean, it's not that there's not a place for data scientists, but every single um, every single person in the world could stand from, um, could get value from being more data-driven and asking more questions and answering those questions with data. And so those skills are, understanding use cases for data, understanding different types of data, um, whether it's a behavioral data, behavioral data or demographic data. I mean, the, you know, these are just kind of terms that are, are good for people to understand. And, and so we um, kind of in the field that we're in, people talk about those terms as in those kind of skills as being in data literacy. And so we need a more data literate world. And, and so it really all starts there. And, and in our, we have a, a learning platform and it's by persona. And so for us, we our base layer is data citizens. And those are your core data literacy skills. And then you, you know, if you start layering on other skills, data storytelling. Um, obviously, visualization is what anytime people think of data skills, they think of charts. <laughs> and it's just kind of the, the nature of what we all think of. And so those data visualization skills, what types of charts, interpreting charts, choosing tar- charts, but then even storytelling, you know, getting insights out of data and then weaving that into weaving a narrative around those insights. Um, it may be a persuasive narrative. You might actually be trying to sell someone on something. And, and so those are all skills that are in and around data. And those are way before you start doing uh, predictive analytics, right? A few weeks back, we had a great discussion with a gentleman named Derek Steer, who's the CEO of Mode, which is a data analytics platform designed uh, to make it easy to go from question to answer via data in a minimal amount of time. 
So right. he really, he really talked about like, like what you said, it's really about asking better questions. It's not about, you know, mastering a Jupyter notebook or, right, you know, yeah. or owning a data pipeline or something like that. Um, so I love that persona that you mentioned, the data storyteller. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I've got, you know, kind of what mode does and data platforms do like that seems to be on one side of the spectrum. And then to get to the point where you've so abstracted the analytics to the point where you're just telling stories with the data, seems like a big kind of conceptual leap. How, how do you train someone to be a data storyteller? Well, I think people, number one, they don't actually have to be involved in every aspect of creating the story. And what I mean by that is, is you may have people that are digging in very deep with the data to produce the insights. And those might be data professionals, right? Those might be your data analysts that are saying, so here's what's going on. I looked at the data. I did some deep analysis. I did some statistical analysis on this. And, and I'm seeing that here are the trends um, that are evident in that data and maybe some of the correlations of that, those trends are being driven by these three things. And, and so maybe then now my job is to present that um, to management along with a, um, you know, along with a, a proposal for what we want to do about it. Maybe we're going to staff up a project to take advantage of that. And so I, the, the most effective way to, to do a presentation like that is to actually in, in, um, include elements of storytelling. And, and so tell that in a, in a way that it is actually a nice flowing story, kind of follows a narrative arc. And, and those are skills. Those are skills that can be taught. Understanding um, the different elements of, the, of a story, understanding the different elements of, of persuasion. Um, how do you persuade someone um, to a particular opinion that, that you hold and that you want to convince them of? Um, understanding different types of visualizations and and how you actually really clearly get across and and show those insights visually because you know most of us um, process things visually much faster than we do if we're if we're in text and and so all of those things together those are all skills those are all skills that need to be practiced and and honed um, in each and every one of us to be a better storyteller to be better at um, choosing visualizations, interpreting visualizations, representing insights with, in visuals and, and so on. And so those, that's a, that is a skill set. I mean, there, there are books on that. There's plenty of training on that. Obviously, in our platform, we have um, a, lot of, a lot of elements of that in our learning platform as well. And so those are, those are hard skills that people can definitely learn. So make it real for us. So take a, an example of a customer you're proud of and tell us you know, how they measure success using your platform. Yeah, one of our customers is Southern Company. It's a big um, utility, Fortune Fortune 150 uh, utility conglomerate in the southeast and even up the um, eastern shore a little bit. Um, and so they are one of the things that I'm I'm very happy to see. I mean, we're a startup, right? So you know, these are these things are all very very meaningful to us. Um, and it's really great to see that in a pretty significant rollout at a company like Southern Company, this is not a high tech company, right? This is a utility company there. And it's not that they don't have high tech people there. They do. But this is not, you know, it's not like our first big customer was Uber and, and they're, you know, incredibly technical workforce. And it's only those types of companies that are investing in data literacy. It's great to see that it's utilities and manufacturing type companies that are doing it. And on top of that, what one of the data points that I that I really love in in that customer example is eighty percent of the people that are um, involved in the platform or that are, have seats um, for our subscription are outside of IT. 
And so this is not a, a platform just for data professionals. This is a platform for all of us. And I think that that means we're hitting at the right thing because that's what we're trying to do. And, and so I'm I'm particularly proud of that stat and in seeing that um, that proliferate across our customer base. You talk a lot about the ethical implications of this broader use of data and how we can make decisions that are inadvertently biased because there's bias built into the data. When you think about the training that you do, do you feel like you as Quant Hub have an obligation to introduce your students to the potential pitfalls of making decisions and generating insights from data when the data may have poor hygiene? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. So in, in terms of thinking about it from an ethics perspective, I, I don't think it's our job as Quant Hub to um, teach and preach ethics per se. I, you know, naturally that's a, um, that's maybe a different type of, of um, not even training, but just, you know, maybe core values of companies and, and hiring people and, and promoting a high character, high integrity environment. But for us, we actually, part of data citizen that I mentioned earlier is bias. Um, so we actually have um, learning content around the different types of bias. Um, and so uh, that's that's critically important. But I think even beyond that, um, understanding, uh, back to understanding charts, understanding different types of data, understanding different elements of data quality, these things are all important in recognizing bias. And, and it's it's so that you basically, what you want is you want people to not take data at face value. Right, they should ask some questions, and you know where that data come from. How was it collected? And and being able to understand um, different types of data back to the psychographic versus behavioral versus demographic, and and so on. These types of things are useful concepts to understand for people to on their own be able to recognize potential pitfalls with data. Um, which you know, it's it. Some of that, some of those problems come from yes, there's bias in a data set. There's then going to be some biased analysis, and if I'm not thinking about it, if I don't understand even how that's possible, and I don't understand the different types of bias, well, it's not really an ethics problem. It's just a lack of understanding, right? So it's actually going to proliferate just simply because I don't know. I don't know any better, right? And so that's where I think data literacy, as an example, is a really important skill. Um, in this, you know, in specifically in um, representing things accurately uh, with data. I firmly believe no data analyst in a business setting derives some insights from data and has any kind of ulterior motive or, you know, insidious motive about, you know, how to manipulate the data to make a decision that's, you know, that, that, that's biased. And yet, you know, there are many examples from, you know, who goes to prison to how long they're in mm -hmm. prison for, who gets a loan, uh, you know, who gets a raise, who gets the job, where, let's say, underrepresented populations are underrepresented in the data. And we make decisions right. based on the data. It creeps into the decision making. Absolutely. What are, what are the ways that, you know, as a community educating the next generation of, you know, data fluent team members, you know, how, how can we assert the importance of asking the question up front, you know, what could go wrong? Like where in the process of learning does that, should we be including that? 
Well, that's a that's a good question. Right now, I think we're a little late to the game in trying to upskill the entire um, working population of the world in data skills. It would have been great if if this happened earlier in life. So I do think um, data literacy, if you will, will be sort of the gen ed of the future. And there are examples of universities. I forget if it's Duke or North Carolina. I want to say it's North Carolina where there are aspects of data literacy creeping into the curriculum at sort of a gen ed type of level um, across all students, not specific to people that are going into STEM, STEM related fields. And so um, I, there, there also are quite a few, there's a lot of talk right now and some action um, happening where some of these concepts around data are actually making it into K through 12, which is where it needs to be. And so it just, it just needs to be secondhand. And, and, you know, if you think about back to other sort of transformational times um, from a skill or technology perspective, there are plenty of examples, but one that, that I think of, I'm, I'm almost 50. And so I was working in the nineties when computers came out and, and it was just no longer, it, it got to the point where it was no longer optional for you to know how to use a computer you couldn't work and you could barely live without knowing how to use a computer. And that's actually where this is headed. And we're not quite there yet, um, but that is where this is headed. Um, it's, it's proliferating to that extent where, you know, we're just surrounded by it and, and it's just, it's just part of living. It's just part of working. And that's, that's kind of where this is, where this is headed. And so it needs to be part of the fabric of our ed educational system so that we can all then, you know, take part. I love that vision. Completely agree that part of the general education requirements should be what you're calling, yeah, a kind of a foundation in data literacy. So with respect to QuantHub and the QuantHub business model, what does the world look like when, when data literacy is, is built into the fabric of the educational system? Well, specifically, I, I, that's going to take a little while. <laughs> and, and I, I like to think that we're going to be a part of that. And, and so, um, the model that you know, part of the problem that you have right now is that there are a lot of, there's so many great training companies out there. I mean, th these are the Coursera's of the world. You know, these are, you know, people love Coursera. There's a great company. And, but when it comes to a transformational skill like this, that is sort of a every human being on the planet kind of, kind of skill, you can't just roll out training courses let's just take an example company, 9,000 person company, maybe. You can't send 9,000 licenses to a training, you know, to a course and, and have any success, particularly when it's somewhat of a technical skill and you're sending it to non-technical people. It's just not going to happen like that. You just get so low adoption that you don't really move the needle. And, and so I, you know, a different model is needed. And so we're, we're a micro learning platform. Um, we're like the language learning platforms. You've heard of Duolingo and, and Babel and some of these others. They're all learned 10, 15 minutes a day. And they're based on learning science so that um, they understand that you've got to put things back in front of people after they learn them so that they remember them. And, and that's our model. And it's much more easy um, to consume that when you start talking about those 9,000 people. It's not that they need to go search a big platform like Coursera and say data skills. I need to learn data skills. <laughs> You're going to get thousands of things to come back. It needs to be something that's much, much lower friction, I like to say, um, so that people can actually do it. So I think long term for our business model, this is all good. Um, these skills are, are, are 
necessary now and will be even more necessary in the future. And so that type of um, sort of transformational change that's happening globally is good for a company like us. So you think about Pornhub as almost like you said, a Duolingo for data literacy. Exactly. Now, one of the things I mentioned at the opening of the show is that your first guest from Alabama. So one of the uh, one of the things I want to know is uh, challenges and or opportunities of starting a company in a non-traditional, uh, mm-hmm. in, in a place that's not a tra- traditional tech hub. Yeah. Well, you know, so these, these challenges, well, I think there are actually pros and cons. Um, some of the challenges are access to capital. Access to angel capital is great. Uh, we were able to raise a, uh, our first round that we raised, we raised it in 30 days as 1.25 million and, and, you know, it was from all angels. And so um, any, any local, we're in Birmingham and, and so any city like Birmingham, whether it's in the South, North, East, West, um, it, you know, these kind of second tier cities, there's still access to that type of capital. There are plenty of wealthy individuals that are investing in startups. Um, I would say the institutional capital is a little harder to come by. Um, I know you're in Silicon Valley. It's harder to get in an inbox and get those meetings and get traction in those in those types of organizations, those types of companies um, or investment companies. I mean, um, VCs. It's a little that is a little bit harder. Um, but access to talent. I mean, we're we're remote. Um, you know, we we weren't remote in February of last year, but quickly in in March became remote, like the rest of the world. And, and so now we're fully remote and we love it. Um, so we just hired someone in Madison, Wisconsin, just hired someone in Orlando, Florida. Uh, we had someone recently out of Utah. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think actually there are a lot of cons. I love, I love living here. I love, um, you know, I think we're able to, you know, forge a very successful path um, being here in Birmingham. There's a great tech community. It's obviously smaller than it is out there or in, in the Northeast. Um, but very close knit. So there are a lot of sort of trusted confidence that come from that. I'm sold. Let me know when you're running for mayor of, of uh, Birmingham <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll move there and vote for you. Good Lord. I do not want to get into <laughs> politics right now. <laughs> so Smart man. Don't hold Smart your man. breath. <laughs> hey, Matt, I, uh, I got to get you off the hot seat, but uh, one more question I want to get your perspective on. So let's say you're talking to a group of uh, high school kids and they're you know looking at the jobs of the future and you know, what, what to invest a career in and they want to be relevant, you know, 10 years from now or 15 or 20. Um, what are the skills that you think are kind of future proof that high school kids should be thinking about investing in? And, you know, what are uh, equally important? You know, what are some of the things that you think are careers that currently make sense, but probably won't make as much sense in 10 to 20 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think about this a lot because my son is a sophomore in college and my daughter is a senior in high school. And and so, um, you know, I think technology skills are, I mean, that's the obvious answer that um, technology is, is doing nothing but becoming more important. So obviously that's that's what I've encouraged my kids to do, but neither one of them are doing it. <laughs> and And so I've thought a lot about this, that um, my son actually, interestingly, is going into um, broadcasting, media, journalism, TV production, that type of um, sports media. That so the kind of intersection of all of those different things, and you know, kind of figuring it out from here. And and so I guess maybe where I've where I've landed on this um, as a parent is, um, you know, I, I mean, I think for me, it's all about you can be successful in in a lot of different things. So it's all about applying yourself and. And, you know, what I tell my kids is, is, is it's all about 
um, making connections. So I think in this day and age where everyone goes to college, it was different when I grew up. Um, now everyone goes to college and everyone comes out with a four-year degree um, and a lot of debt and so on. And so um, to me, my, my son is, has like five or six internships he's doing. They're all like part-time. And so to me, that is the key. Because um, you can be successful in sales, marketing, technology roles, TV production, broadcasting, whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, but for for me as a parent and trying to trying to instill in him is that you got to make connections because um, so many people hire from from people that they know and and that they trust and that they see are applying themselves and and they're passionate about what they're doing, whatever that might be. And, and so that's a big that's a big key for me. I do think there's going to be automation displacing jobs of, of things that, um, you know, certain certain fields like take radiology um, as an example that, you know, the the ability of a computer to actually analyze um, images um, from a radiology perspective is is far better than humans. And, and actually finding outliers. Now, the person then is probably better at actually figuring out what's going on, but actually identifying anomalies, computers are exceptional at that. And so that's, you know, look for those types of things um, that's exist, that exist in a lot of different places. I think accounting is another area that you still need human analysis, um, but some of, the, um, some of that can be automated. And so, um, you know, apply yourself to understand what's going on and be a, a good communicator and storyteller. And those skills are hard to automate. Before I let you go, I'm sure uh, many, uh, many listeners are interested in learning more about QuantHub. Where would you point me to? Yeah, I think you can go to our, our website and, um, and you know, you'll find plenty of information there. I'd love to connect with anyone on, on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty active on, on LinkedIn. And, um, and so, yeah, I would love to connect with people um, directly. You know, we're an early stage company. So um, love hearing from individuals that are passionate about this area and, and what their approach is and, and even just comparing notes. Um, if it's that, that's fine too. I'd, I'd, I'd love to learn more about what people are doing. Excellent. Well, Matt, I can tell you not just me, but uh, but we're all we're all rooting for QuantHub to succeed. It's a, it's an essential <laughs> uh, essential part of the new economy, and yeah, uh, really that. really enjoyed the conversation. Maybe we'll come back in the future and uh, give us an update. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, Dan. I appreciate you guys having me. You bet. Well, that's a wrap for this week. This is uh, your host, Dan Turchin of AI and the Future of Work, signing off. But uh, back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>